Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly, for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. sure you've all have heard the statement, at some time or another, you need to love yourself before you can love anyone else. I have heard it hundreds, if not thousands of times in the circles um, in which I move. And sometimes I'll push back, but other times I will just believe that they are thinking another thought than what I am thinking in that moment. I mean, you've probably heard this yourself. It seems to make sense on its face. After all, it's important to take care of oneself. It's important to respect oneself. Maybe as a believer, even you have wrestled with the tension between loving yourself like you hear other people talking about and loving yourself according to what the Bible says, according how the Bible teaches us. This is an important example of the necessity of defining terms when we listen to what the world is saying. Because the world has a very, a vast, differently, vastly different idea of what the love of self is. The difference between the world's idea of loving oneself and the Bible's idea of loving oneself are worlds apart. How we view ourselves is really one of the most important influences on how we approach God, our relationships in the world, second only to how we view God. And this is where that turn happens between what the world believes and how the world understands how our flesh wants to love itself versus what God says about how we should love ourselves. One of the only places in the New Testament that this is specifically spoken of, it doesn't even give an explanation, but it says the word is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and that's today's starting text. We're going to take a look at that. So if you have your Bibles, get them out. If not, it's going to be up here. Timothy says in, uh, Paul says to Timothy in chapter 3, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self. There's our phrase. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness. It all seems right, but denying its power. Then he goes on to tell Timothy, blatantly avoid such people. There's little doubt, at least in my mind, that we're seeing something of this passage, something of this promise of Paul to Timothy being played out right before our eyes. 
when we consider the division, when we consider how things are disintegrating around us. Institutions that once were the glue of our society holding us together are now melting away so that everyone is going to a way that seems right in their own eyes. Now, I am not being an alarmist, I don't think. I'm the first person to say it could get a lot worse. When we look at the places around the world where people are facing open persecution, even being killed for their faith, it can get a lot worse. But there is no doubt that we are seeing this trajectory in our society even now. Now, whether or not you believe that this is speaking of a time after the New Testament era, or this is speaking of a time right before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, sort of doesn't matter. Because when Jesus died and then rose and ascended to heaven, it started something of a countdown clock. No one knows how much time is on that clock. If I saw Jesus in the flesh, I would have thought that clock's about to go quickly. Maybe tomorrow. But the truth is, is that none of us knows when that's going to happen. This is why we stand on guard. This is why we live as if Jesus' return is imminent and could come at any time. And when we read passages like this, we see, yes, I can see this. Check, check, check. The bottom line is, is it's getting worse and worse. This phrase, lovers of self, in my mind, when I read this, I believe God is telling us something by listing out these various sins, these various characteristics that go down after it. The word here, it's sort of simple, but the idea is a compound word in Greek. The word is philautos. Phileo means to love. It's a verb to love. And autos means oneself. It is a compound word that's used in Greek to describe exactly what we're talking about, the love of self. What's interesting about this word is that it's something called a hapox legomenon. That means it's only one time in the Bible. That's all you need to know. There's only one time that this word occurs. One of the benefits of knowing the Bible well is when you get to a word you don't understand or an idea you don't understand, you can go to another place in the Bible. And you can say, well, this says this about this word here, so it can influence and inform the way I read the word here. This is not the issue here. We cannot look elsewhere in the Bible to understand what this word means. We have to look outside of the Bible. We're going to look in two places. The first is in the works of Philo of Alexandria. This is about the time that Paul, 100 years before, that Paul is writing. Pretty close. And he uses the word philautos in connection with an atheistic mindset. And this is what he says. But the selfish and atheistical mind, thinking itself equal with God. He uses the word philautos in the place of selfish. The selfish and atheistical mind, thinking itself equal to God. So that would lend us to believe then philautos here is being used in something of that sense. A selfishness. The belief that one is equal with God. I can make my own decisions. No one can tell me what to do because I am the commander of my fate. In another place around this time is in the works of Josephus in the Jewish antiquities. He puts this word in the mouth of Moses. He's telling the story about when Moses establishes the tabernacle and it's time to now choose the chief priest of the nation of Israel. And Moses is reflecting on that choice. This is not the Bible. This is Josephus saying what the tradition says 
Moses said. And this is what he says. He says, Indeed, had the inquiry after such a person, had the search for our chief priest been left to me, that is Moses, I should have thought myself worthy of the honor. Because both because all men are naturally fond of themselves, philautos, and because I am conscious to myself that I have taken great pains in dealing with your deliverance. Okay. Now, from that, it would seem that that word philautos has the sense of self-interestedness, of self-promotion, and of self-evaluation. I'm worthy. I did something in pointing to those actions as the basis of one's worth. So it seems to me that this word that Paul uses only one time in speaking to Timothy has this sense of self-centered aggrandizement that's very different from the concept of self-love that we reject as believers. In other words, we, the love of self that the Bible condemns is more opposite to the idea of humility than to the idea of hatred. Now, this would make sense because again and again in the New Testament, we see Paul and others telling us to count yourselves as less important than others. To look to your own concerns, but more so the concerns of those around you. To turn from a selfish perspective about who you are and your world that you move in to an outward focus, an intense concern out of love for the world and the benefit of those around us. So let's go back and take a look at the passage and see how closely the rest of these sin squares with these ideas. Lovers of self, that's our key word. That's the first word in the line. Lovers of money. What does money give us? It gives us power, influence. It gives us security. It protects me. It's a self-centered understanding of what I can accomplish for myself with money. The root of all types of evil is the love of money, the Bible says. It's a self-centered drive being proud, that's pretty obvious, arrogant, I'm better than you, abusive, do what I want or else, disobedient to parents, you can't tell me what to do, ungrateful, I deserve more, unholy, I'm the one in charge, unappeasable, I need more, slanderous, look at them, I'm better than they are, lack of self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. There again, we see that idea very clearly before us. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This, for a long time, and I think even today as believers, this is how we understand the love of self. If I love self, this is what I'm going to end up looking like. The issue with that is the Bible also talks about a biblical, godly love of self that we eliminate from the conversation as followers of the Lord. I mean, we can see it in passages like this, Proverbs 19.8. Whoever gets sense loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will discover good. Proverbs 15.32, whoever ignores instruction despises himself, so hates himself, the opposite then. But he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Ephesians 5.28 and 29 in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Finally, maybe the most important one, Matthew 22, 36 to 39. 
Jesus is asked, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love others in the same way you love yourself. This is important. So then the Bible does not rule out the idea of loving oneself, caring for oneself, and finding worth in oneself. The difference is the orientation of the heart in doing so. Are we oriented towards ourselves and looking to ourselves as the basis of our own value and worth? Or are we looking outward to what God says we are, who God says we are, and predicating our understanding and our self-concept and about our worth and how we should treat ourselves and consider ourselves on his word? in what Christ has done and not on what we have done. In other words, who is assigning my value? Is it God or is it me or the opinion of others that I take? So in very much way, when we talked about the love of the world, the love of the flesh, we talked about these ideas of inordinate love, lust, right? Love gone astray. So today we're going to talk first about the inordinate love of self is motivated first and foremost by idolatry. The inordinate love of self, that non-biblical self-love, that ugly self-love that we as Christians are hopefully smart to not embrace is ultimately rooted in idolatry. We are making ourselves God. We are worshiping something other than God. When we place ourselves in the throne of our heart, we take the place of God. I know what's best. I know what I want. I'm going to go get it. This bleeds out into the way that we judge ourselves and we judge others. I mean, we come from a sinful, flawed perspective. My initial in the flesh response about myself is, I'm not that bad. I've done some pretty good things, and therefore it would be a good idea for you to think the same about me. And then we impute that onto other people. Someone does good, love them. Someone does bad, not love them. This idolatry expresses itself in lots of ways. It doesn't just look like we're bowing down to an idol or bowing down to some statue. It comes out in lots of ways in our life. First of all, it comes out in pride. Self-interest. And all of us, I believe, are rooted, our hearts are rooted in this idea of self. This is part of the sin nature we carry around us. I mean, how many times, I mean, I confess to this, how many times when you're talking to someone and they tell you something, immediately we think, how does this impact me? Like, what are the implications for me? Um... I was talking to someone about who was single for a long time, and they, they talked about how it was really hard for them. It took time to be happy for someone else's happiness. You know, that same idea of being able to overlook oneself in an equation, to look outward to others. We see this in the Timothy passage. If you look at every one of the manifestations that he's talking about, inordinate love of self is the ground from which those things spring. Considering ourselves better or more important than others comes out in things like self-aggrandizement, self-promotion. Sometimes it comes out, I've got to tell you, I wanted to, I started a website. It was called adamwaters.org. 
and I was going to put all these good content and all these things, and I never built it. <laughs> I was so convicted about putting my name in the email or in the, the site that I could not bring myself to do it. I believe that was, the, it was God protecting me from myself because we're all interested in promoting what we think is best and what we want for ourselves and what we want for the people around us and how we can do it for you, for those around us. Self-deprecation is a manifestation of pride. Oh, I'm so terrible. I'm not good. Many times I sit with people and they, they come, I just, I'm miserable. I am not happy. My life is high. I have all these troubles, people in my life that me, 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 me. So what's my problem? I'm depressed. No, you're proud. That's a hard truth. Is that there are times when our de depression is literally just an ego run wild. There is no doubt that there is a such thing as clinical depression. Treatment by a medical professional is important. But I venture to say that 90% of the things that we call depression are a refusal to come to terms with life as it is and an inflamed sense of ego. We have to come to terms with this. It's not about us. It's about less of us and more of him. It's about moving ourselves out of the way and making Jesus bigger. Sometimes our pride comes out in a victim mentality. People are going to hurt you. You're going to hurt people. This is part of what it means to live in a sinful world. When we carry around this sense that I've been injured, that I'm a victim, and we don't make that turn unto the Lord and say, Lord, you've seen my plight. Lord, you've seen that I've been injured, that this person did this to me. And we allow that victim mentality to carry us through life. It influences everything. And it's all rooted in a love of self. We'll talk a little bit about why. But I need to love me because no one else loves me. <laughs> so it's rooted, or it comes out in pride. It can come out in practical atheism. What's that? That is discounting God as being God. And many believers live here. Yes, of course I believe in God. Then put down this thing. Well, I don't want to do that. Or living as if God's not really watching. We sang a lyric. I'm not going to be able to remember it now that, we're, now that I'm thinking about it. But it's basically, you see everything about me. And for that I rejoice. That's a terrifying statement. How is it that I can rejoice when God knows everything? You know my ways. All my ways are known to you. That's what it is. All my ways are known to you. And oh, what peace that I have because all my ways are known to you. How is that? How can we say that? It's because we trust that Christ has forgiven us and that even in the face of our sin, he knows all our ways, even if he sees us as his perfect child. I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to talk about that. Psalm 14, 1 says this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The Hebrew word does not mean there is, that there is does not mean not equal to, like it does not exist. It means for all intents and purposes, there is no God. I will live my life the way I choose. God exists, but he really doesn't matter in our life. He exists, but he might not be true to his word, so I need to take care of myself. Which issues in self-love, the ugly self, inordinate self-love. 
And so we begin to fend for ourselves. This comes out of, like I said, an orphan status. When we do not embrace the fact that because Christ has died and that we have been grafted, adopted into his family and now we are a child of God, we are forced to fend for ourselves. Consider yourself an orphan in an, in an orphanage. In this, you're, lab, you're languishing there. It's dirty, everyone hates each other, people are tired, it's miserable. But you get wind of someone, a royal person, who has all the money in the world, the most loving heart, the perfect parent, is coming. What's the first thing you're going to do? I'm going to take a bath. I'm going to do push-ups. I'm going to try to find my best clothes. I'm going to try to get my hair cut, shave. I want to put my best foot forward because I want him to pick me. Truth is, is you've been picked. If you're a child of God, you're in his family. He chose you from the foundation of the beginning of the world. And we don't have to any longer be seeking that approval, earning our acceptance before him. We no longer have to look to our works and say, look at everything I've done. Look how good I look. You should pick me. We no longer have to look to the opinions of others to tell us that we're okay. We no longer have to look to our experiences, the lies that we've believed, the traumas that we've suffered. Lately in my life, I've been having lots of conversations and trauma seems to be a theme word of them. And it's my belief that all of us carry them. That all of us have been injured and wounded deeply. When those traumas happen, we assign a lie to them about who we are. If we're not careful to say, someone hurt me, but God said, it creates something in our hearts. And then every interaction going forward is filtered through that lie. And it affects so much everything. The way we view ourselves, the way we view God, the way we view others and our own self-worth. All right. So inordinate love of self is expressed in idolatry. But the godly and biblical love of self embraces God. God's evaluation of us. When we read through the book of the word, when we read through God's word and we see what he says about us, this is the lens through which we view ourselves. Godly love says, God says this about me. Not I say, or he said, or what God says. We believe God's truth regarding several things. First of all, our identity. Each of you were made in the image of God. That means inherent to who you are is value and worth. That God being perfect made a little one. And that carries value. He knew you before you were born. He knew you before you were born. I think about I think about things in my own life. I was talking to another guy yesterday and he told me some stories about his life and it's like, why am I here? I should have been dead a long time ago. And not just that one time. This time, this time, this time, and this time. Why? God had a plan. There are things that God has protected you through that bring you to this point here today. 
Part of that reason is because he had a plan. God has known you. He's made you with loving intimacy in mind. said it last week, I want to say it again. 80% of what we do in this world, 90%, I don't know, doesn't matter. Run for God. All the complication in your life, run for God. Simplify, get rid of it all. God. In your prayer closet, in your room, in your car. God, I'm yours. What do you want? For that is why you were made. Everything else in this world must be an expression of that relationship. Otherwise, it's invariably putting the, heart before, the cart before the horse. We end up trying to find the effect in making it happen for ourselves instead of trusting the one who wants to make it happen for us. You were created with a purpose, and that has given you worth by an infinitely worthy God. We believe who we are regarding that worth, that Christ died and suffered for you. Think about this. First of all, I believe if there were only one believer who was ever going to be saved in the history of the church, Christ would have died for them. That means if you were the only believer, the only one who would ever put their faith in the Lord Jesus, he would have suffered and died for his church of one. You. Not only that, you're worthy because you carry the Holy Spirit around. We individually or collectively and each individually are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God does not come into a dirty space. God, clean, God rehabs. <laughs> God rehabs. God lives in a place that's clean because God was able to do it through Jesus' death to bring the mundane and the majestic together. You're worthy. Because of what God did, what God has done. You were purchased with a price, and that price is infinitely high. Think about this Jesus' death, Jesus himself, of infinite worth. And he died in order to save you, even if there was only you. That means that your price, the price he had to pay to redeem you, was infinite. Infinite. God has given you worth. He sees your worth. He tells you your worth, so trust him. We trust God regarding our sin. All this is great, but it's, you don't see what I do. You see that I still sin. You see that I still mess up. God, I'm not that worthy. God, if you really knew, here's this practical atheism. God, if you really knew what I think about in my head, you wouldn't love me. God knows what you think in your head more than you know what you think in your head. Yet even in the face of that, and before you were ever knew before you ever had any idea he existed, he knew you, he loved you. He created you, he planned for you. We need to come to terms with the fact that we're sinners and God loves us anyway. That our sin is not an indication of our worth and therefore should not be the basis for our own self-concept, our own love of self. Filtered through the eyes of God that we have been given worth through him. Acknowledgement of our sin is the doorway to the peace we all seek. It's not that we focus on our problem, but we're focusing on God's solution. 
last couple days I was in a conference, and uh, integral to that conference was the idea of absolutely transparent, transparency about one's past, and absolute vulnerability in the context of a small group of believers who are committed to never opening their mouth about it. A place that we can come to talk about the most deep-seated issues of our heart in safety and allow someone to say, yes, but you know Jesus. <laughs> yes, but Jesus. Coming to church on Sunday morning, this, I'm not going to discount the, the, the power of God speaking through me, through the music, through those things. Essential. This does not create radical life transformation. It does not. We know because we have people go to church for years and years and they're stuck. I sense it in myself. We need to be honest about our sin in the context of a group of people small who love us and want what's best for us and want to speak truth to us. And we embrace that truth of God's grace. God said we're valuable. We can stop striving for acceptance and receive the forgiveness and the grace that he has given us. Think about, it's just hard for me because I think I'm giving myself a pass. Maybe you know that too. Maybe you feel that too. Maybe you mess up. Maybe you mess up big. And someone says, yes, but the, Jesus forgives you. There's grace for you. And we say, yeah, I know, but I'm going to beat myself over the head a little bit more. I've not wounded myself enough. When I was a plumber, you'd often have fittings that are on a length of pipe that will not come off. And there are ways of utilizing leverage, gravity, common sense on getting these fittings off in our life. There are these fittings off. For one thing, is it's usually less effective to push than it is to pull. If you can pull on a fitting to loosen it, it's better than if you push. Particularly because if you push and that fitting goes, you're going to wrap your knuckles on whatever's on the other side. Many times, I've been pushing on a fitting. Something's telling me you should be pulling on this. And I tell myself, no, I can mitigate the damage. As soon as I feel the fitting start to go, I'll stop pushing. I won't allow, it won't happen this time, is what I tell myself, right? How often do we do this? There's a thing in our life, we know we're supposed to approach it one way, but we want to approach it another because we think we know better and we think we can manage the consequences of it. And so we do it the way we know we're going to get hurt, that every other time. Now, what we do too often is after insisting on our own way, pushing on the wrench, going and knowing we're going to hurt our knuckles, pushing through, hurting our knuckles, we then take the wrench and beat our hand with it and say, how could you do that? The point I'm making is that we spend time, far too much time, feeling the shame and punishing ourselves over the sins we have committed instead of coming to terms in an objective way. I am a sinner. I'm going to mess up. Thank you, Lord Jesus that you saw this sin, you knew this sin, and you have forgiven it once and for all. I can walk in the grace of the Lord. 
You can see when someone walks in the grace of the Lord. You can see when someone's embraced the fact that they are forgiven once and for all. Do they mess up? Sure. Is it terrible? Grieves God's heart. But you know what? Freed from the penalty of sin means freed from the penalty of sin. Not only that, Christ bore our shame on the cross. Which means that it's not just our sin technically, the judicial side of it. It's the shame. He hung on a shameful sinner's cross that we do not have to carry that shame around with us. We've been freed from it as well. Oh, that we would all just walk in the grace. I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. I want to beat myself up again and again. How could you say that? You realize how stupid you sounded? I can't believe you thought that. I can't believe you did that. Three. The antidote for the inordinate love of self is repentance. Repentance. When I say repentance, sort of in line with what I just talked about, I do not mean groveling. There's certainly an emotional element to it. It does not mean self-deprecation that I am just the worst of the worst and staying in this place. Repentance means metanoia in Greek, to turn. Really means to turn one's mind, to change one's mind. It means I was believing and acting this way, but I repented, which means I now am striving this direction. What is the orientation of the arrow in our heart? If Jesus in his truth is north on our compass, which way is our needle pointed? Pointing the wrong direction, we repent and we come back to God. Not only is that what we do and we make that term, but repentance is not just something we do once. It's a lifestyle. It's an attitude. It's a recognition. Lord, I am prone to always think wrong. I am prone to believing your lies. I am prone to thinking that I'm believing the truth and then finding out later that it's a lie. I don't see clearly. I want what I want. I want to feel good over feeling righteous. I want to live my life apart from you. Luther said that our life is a lifestyle of repentance, that our whole being is a repentant being. This repentance must move in order for it to be repentance. Listen to this. Repentance must move from the place of thoughts to the place of action in order to be repentance. Okay? So let me give you this. An example you know, your kid does something for the 10th time. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. Certain amount of times, all you parents know, they're not really sorry. Because if they were sorry, they would do different. There is a sense in our lives, our own spiritual lives, that if we are really sold out to, <laughs> to what God is telling us, if we are really embracing the sin and recognizing the gravity of the situation, it will, over time, and consistently issue in deeds keeping with repentance. This is what the scripture uses. Deeds in keeping with repentance. It's not just feeling self-hatred. It's not just feeling aggravation with oneself or one's inability. We see this in Paul. Paul, in chapter 7 of Romans, says, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I want to do this. I end up doing this. This sense of just, I'm stuck in the middle of what I want, what God wants. I don't know how to get out. 
At the very end of that chapter, he says, but thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus. And then he goes on to say, now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He moves from what he, he recognizes. He must move again and again back to Jesus. Again and again. Christ being the answer. And then acting on that repentance. Acting, behaving, changing as you walk through that repentance. We often look at repentance as just this sort of gravel piece, but it's all in one. I think that there's a lot of elements that go with the repentant lifestyle. First, and we talked about it a little bit already, is confession. When we confess what we're doing, we're, we're admitting that what is happening is happening. It's an essential piece. Part of the issues or part of the guidance for confession is that we need to be specific and we need to be honest. Okay? What I would encourage all of us to do, and this is what I try to do in my own life, is to think of the sin behind the sin. All right? So, if Elaine and I are in an argument and I say something that I should not say, something out of you know, meanness to her, some unkind word. And I come back and I say, I'm sorry that I I did this. I'm sorry that I said that. That's well and good. What it could sound like is, I'm sorry for disrespecting you. I'm sorry for trying to thrust what I want over what you want. I'm sorry for only thinking of myself in this situation. I'm sorry for looking at you as an enemy instead of a friend. I'm sorry for being prideful in the way I'm seeing this situation. Do you see the difference? It's deep. We spend a lot of time confessing the fruits of our heart instead of confessing the roots of our heart. This is part of the value of being in a small group of honest and transparent and vulnerable people is if I have sin lodged deep in my heart in places I don't even want to go, I need someone to speak a word of redemption, of, of in a, a word of forgiveness, of shining the light of the Spirit down in those recesses. Many of us believe wrongly that if I spend time doing devotions, that eventually God will get down there. God's capable of doing anything, but he uses means. And he's chosen to use us, each other. This is our best bet. We're each other's best bet. When we come to one another in open and honest confession, when we are talking about the deep things of our heart and allowing God's light to touch them, we see change. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Everyone's got sin. This is why I can get up there and talk, call you guys sinners. This is why I can get up and say something about my own sin and know that you can relate because everyone is carrying this around. The truth is not in us. That's eight. I'll tell you nine in a minute. We each have lies that we tend to believe regarding our self-worth and our value. But we need to strive for the awareness of those lies. We need to look at God's word and compare it, and where it doesn't match up, confess it as sin. Lord, I've been working and seeing my works as the basis for my worth. Forgive me. Give me the power to live a life that looks solely to Christ and what he has done. Nothing of what I've done on my own. We make the decision to turn from those lies and believe God's truth. And we come to terms with God in our confession with, for him and before others of really what's going on. 
Many times we need to confess why we don't want to confess. <laughs> Many times we need to confess, Lord, this is what's going on. I'm loving myself and I'm trying to find my own worth through my own self-evaluation. But I'm afraid that you really don't love me. I'm afraid that if I'm really honest about what I think about and what I've done, even if technically I know you know, you'll reject me. Forgive me and give me the faith to believe the words that you say that no man will snatch you out of my Father's hand. That I am forever secure in Christ because of what he has done and not because what I have done or thought or wanted or felt. We ask God to change our hearts. When we do, verse 9, we confess our sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I see this as forgiving us for the sins we've done and cleansing us from the desire to want to do it again. But we have to be honest. All right, so confess. Second part of repentance is believing. It's the other side. It's a flip piece. Be trusting. Accept what he tells you in his word through his faith, through faith, in his spirit. Perhaps one of the most difficult situations is allowing our feelings to dictate the truth. There are times where we will say, word for word out of the Bible, Lord, I confess this to be true, and I don't feel one word of it. Feelings are important. They're part of who we are as humans. It's part of what it means to be a human being. And feelings are not bad. But feelings can be, just like our thoughts can be, deceitful. And so we do not allow our feelings to dictate how we think. They have to be compared to proper thinking as well. And so it's sort of like a train, you know? The engine pulls everything. So for us, we need to orient, it, orient our mind as the engine pulling the feelings. The engine comes first. The feelings will follow. That illustration went out the window when they started flipping the trains around and putting the engine in the back and scooting them forward. Or now they're putting them in the middle. Then it really threw everything off. But you see the point. You see the point. We try to think right thoughts, have right attitudes, be changed in our hearts, and the feelings will change. But it doesn't happen overnight. It does not. It can. God can do radical transformation. Experience, prevailing wisdom, it takes time. Keep working. Keep dealing with it. We, were, we believe that we trust God for his promises and try not to understand how they're going to play out before they do. Tell me what you're going to do first exactly. Could you imagine that, going to a surgeon? Well, I'm here to tell you, Mr. Waters, that we have to do surgery. Surgery on what? Well, I can't tell you. You're just going to have to trust me. Are there risks involved? There are significant risks. Well, what are they? I'm sorry, I can't tell you that. Will it hurt? It will hurt. Will there be painkillers? Probably not. But the pain will be good. It'll be fine. I mean, think, this is how God wants us to come to him. Lord, I'm broken. Fix me. And then willing to let him do every step of the way without having any foreknowledge of what that's going to be. That's how God wants us to come to him. That's how God is asking you to come to him. We obey. We step out in obedience. We reject those people, places, and things that will bolster the inordinate love of self. 
I've sensed in my life that there are times where I walk up to someone and I go, oh, I know they're going to give me a good word. Pastor, you're the best pastor. You preach so well. You're handsome. They don't say that. You're handsome. And I naturally, my flesh wants to go by that person because my ego wants to be stroked. We surround ourselves with people in an echo chamber that will tell us what we want to hear. And very often those things that they're telling us are not biblical. It does not mean we reject every person in our life. We don't give them the power over us. We trust God's word and trust what he has to say about us. We guard the way we talk to ourselves about who we are and our value and where it lies. And we guard the way we talk to others. Maybe you've been guilty of this. God loves you just the way you are. I wish I could do a poll, an honest poll here, but it would never happen. God doesn't make mistakes. You're special. I mean, don't we really long to hear everything, all of that? When we say it to people, we recognize that we're trying to put forth goodwill and love. But when we're not rooting it through the eyes of the Lord and his word and what Christ has done on their behalf, it's false. God loves you. God knows exactly where you are right now. And God is still striving after you. He loves you so much and you're of so much worth that he sent his son to die. More than that, it's not, he wants to live with you always. He wants to walk with you. He never wants to depart from you. That's how valuable you are. That's how special you are in God's eyes. God doesn't make mistakes, but we do. And he loves us anyway. We step out and care for ourselves in accord with that value in Christ. When we don't care for ourselves in accordance with our value in Christ, we're sinning against God. Embracing the grace of the Lord, respecting our body, not doing anything that would harm it. Fried chicken. We don't allow people to continue mistreating us when we have the opportunity to change a situation. We care for our own souls. Nothing wrong with making that a priority. God makes that a priority for you too. You should do that. Reading his word. Memorizing it. Reading his word for him. For where am I going to find him? Lord, what are you saying to me? Taking Sabbaths. We're far too busy. Far too busy. And our kids are far too busy. Because we're afraid if we don't get them into sports, they're going to grow up malnourished and mal maladjusted for life or they're not going to get a scholarship, or they're not the thousand things we tell ourselves. Come to the Lord in prayer, conversation with him, confessing to him and to others, seeking God to go deep into those hidden recesses, journaling, sometimes a nap, holy sleep. But our soul care needs a soul physician. And the person is Jesus cultivating a deeper relationship with him through the power of the Holy Spirit in every nook and cranny of our life. Oh, you, you do spiritual disciplines? Yeah, I follow the English muffin rule. Every nook and cranny. It's stupid, but I said it. 
And finally, out of all of that, out of this change in idea, a movement towards God in faith and stepping out in obedience comes worship. I don't know about you, but there are times I stand here and I worship and I sing the words and I have a hand raised and I'm trying to drum it up, but I'm really thinking about what's in the crock pot at home. That email that I forgot to send throughout the week or a myriad of things. It's out of our gratitude and humility. It's I'm failing to see what God has done in my life this week, this moment, what he's done throughout my life, how he loves me and cares for me. I think if we all got that, this is a whole other message. It's like 30 times in the Bible it talks about raising hands in worship. That's all I'm going to say. But if we allowed the truth of the scripture, the gospel, to permeate every single place in our life and heart, worship is going to happen. And worship is going to look different. Instead of coming to Sunday like the marathon runner crawling across the finish line, to coming here to get your fix for the week, which demands the most awesome music and the most awesome everything. And you're amped up like a concert and you're saying all the greatest things and people are telling you how awesome you are and they're praying for you and all these things. Instead of coming with that every week, some weeks are like this, every week we come with a sense of overflow. God, you've been so good to me this week. You've forgiven me so much this week. You've shown so much grace this week. Now today I'm going to pour it out. But no, we come for us instead of come for God. You're his child. He's done everything for you. He's calling you into a deeper relationship with him. He wants you to submit everything to him. He wants you to see yourself through his eyes as perfect before him. He wants you to quit looking at yourself is the basis of your evaluation. Start looking to him. Because an inordinate love of self is motivated by idolatry. But godly love of self embraces who God says you are. And the antidote for all of this, for that self-centered, self-seeking love, is repentance. Changing your mind looking to Christ, believing on him, stepping out in obedience, which issues in worship. Let's pray. Father, Father, it's so easy for our hearts to get mixed up, for our thoughts to seem competing, to be at loggerheads with each other, to not know whether to go this way or that way or who to believe or what to believe, Lord, we ask that you would still those words in our mind, those voices in our life, Lord, to see your truth alone about who we are. Forgive us, Lord, where we've loved ourselves out of self-interest. Forgive us, Lord, where we've stroked our own ego or sought people who would. Forgive us, Lord, when we think in a situation, how does this affect me? And forgive us, Lord, when we've been so absorbed with ourselves, we fail to see 
your hand in our lives or opportunities that you're creating around us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us turn in repentance, Lord, to trust, to truth, into who you say we are, that Christ died for us because of our infinite value in him. We pray, Lord, that you would give us opportunities to step on obedience. Lord, just don't move us here at this moment. Change us. Change us. Make us different people who trust you and submit to you in every area that we might give you all the glory. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, I invite you guys to stand. Um, and I'm also uh, going to lead us uh, in a prayer, another prayer. Thank you, Adam. Um, in these words of David, um, on, on which uh, the song that we're going to sing is based. Um, so feel free to close your eyes. I'm just going to pray. And, and in your heart, just, uh, just you're, you're invited to say these words with me as a prayer. This is Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God according to your unfailing love, and according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.